Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I know I normally start these things off with uh, a, a commercial, an advertisement, you know, basically selling my soul, but I got too much to do. I got way too much to talk about. Hey you guys, welcome to the podcast about cycling, hosted by a guy who hasn't been on a bike in over a month. I'm Pat Bulger, welcome to the long overdue Pack Filler Podcast. No, I mean it this time, I am sorry for the extended time off. After Leadville, I, I planned some vacation, but... Let's be honest, that just ran a little bit long. Okay, like three weeks long. I figured I'd better do a show when listeners actually started sending emails. I kid you not, asking me if I was dead and where to send flowers. First off, before we get to all that kind of stuff, I got I got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Um, but I know you guys barely really listen to the intros. You all just want to hear the interviews and that's it because... I don't know if I blame you, but I've I've got I've got so much to catch up on you guys, and and I've been talking about uh, Leadville for for a long ass time, so it's probably time I just kind of recapped and and let that sip sh- sh- sip. Well, I can't even talk anymore. I've been out of this so long. Ship sail off into the distance, you know, and and, and call it where it where it was, and and just. There we go. But first off, you guys, um, as I said at the intro to the show, I usually start with a sponsor and. And and I do have sponsors to mention and things like that, but you know, damn it, I'm going to dedicate this show to to one of my sponsors, uh, who's who's going out. I'd like to say goodbye to a a friend of mine, a friend of the show, who was a sponsor f- most recently for the past well, pretty much this year since I changed the format over and things like that. 
And um, I have several of the products this person's been selling. I'm, I'm a believer in the product, so I'm not necessarily, you know, whoring myself out. But I'd like to uh, dedicate this show to the fine folks over at VeloJerseys.com. Deciding to hang it up after this year, it's tough selling retro jerseys to people who have only been in the sport for a short amount of time. They might not respect the uh, Renault. They might not respect the Multaney. They might not respect La Vie Claire and things like that. And that, that really bums me out, to be honest. But um, a great guy and a great company and things like that, they're, they're trying to burn the doors out and make sure they're going out on a high note. So if you head over to VeloJerseys.com, pick up a couple jerseys, pick up some shorts. By the way, I bought some of the bib shorts, just plain black bib shorts, and, and they're great. They work, for, well, first of all, because I had all these retro jerseys, and you can't wear you know, a, a, a different-looking shorts with a retro kit because it just looks stupid so i went with just all black shorts and they work great for everything you guys so um check them out fellowjerseys.com been with me for a, you know a little bit of while this year and it's been a great having them on board um, maybe i was the one that sent them off into the great you know beyond just being a sponsor of the show is probably a curse within itself but um thanks to fellowjerseys.com for being invo- involved and being a part of the show you guys get over there and check them out and uh, and and make them happy as they go out into the sunset. So here we are. Shall we get caught up? Shall we catch up? <laughs> you guys. I did it. I finished the damn thing. Leadville. I finished it. You didn't beat me. Barely, mind you, but I did finish. I won't go through the whole thing. But I will, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give, maybe I'll give you my classic list, a short list of things that I learned at, at Leadville. Um, I made it under the, hour, under the 12 hours. I got myself a buckle. Not sure what I'm going to do with it. I'm not a belt buckle kind of guy. I, I don't, you know, I don't have a big old Western Stetson hat. I don't have any boots. In fact, I'm sitting here in the studio right now with green Converse low tops and a Batman shirt. So that just kind of tells you the situation of what I'm going to do with a big belt buckle. But um, I was I was pretty damn happy to have earned that thing. Yes, I'm going to talk about myself for a little bit here. You can fast forward. Fine. Fuck you. But um, hardest thing I've ever done on a bike, you guys. I guess that's my first number in the list of things I learned at Leadville. That was honestly the toughest thing I've ever done on a bike. I've never been in the Tour de France. Never will. Um, but as far as climbing on a bike and doing something in one day, that was it. Absolutely brutal and beautiful. Not the most technical course ever, uh, but the climbing, the elevation and the distance made it really something special. Um, as, as, uh, John Stamstead said, you were going to walk your bike. That was one thing I wasn't ready for. I didn't know the course. I mean, I'd seen things. I'd watched some videos and things like that, but I really had no idea what the course was going to be like. I got there early. I did a section of of one of the climbs, kind of dirt roads, and I thought, holy shit, I can do this. This is a piece of cake. You know, no, I hadn't done power line or anything like that. And um, you're going to walk your bike. And that, that is one thing I did learn and get ready for that. There were about seven plus miles I was walking, pushing my bike uphill shredding my bont shoes the soles of the shoes are carbon fiber and they're all scratched up now but oh well 
So that's the first thing I learned. Second thing I definitely said, and, and this is advice for people who are going to do it. If you're in the lottery group, if you're in that group of people who didn't go out and qualify and, and do all the, the work ahead of time, if you're just like me, you got in by sheer luck and, you know, drinking and registering for races, uh, you're going to be held up in that lottery group for the first hour. It, it is, it is a bottleneck for that first hour. Only so many people are going to fit. It is really freaking cold at 10,000 feet at, at six something in the morning. So it wasn't necessarily that bad because you did have body heat. My hands were frozen in that first hour. But, uh, once you get to some sections where it just narrows down, even double track or fire road, you're going to end up coming to a stop. There are just so many people can fit on that road. And now I understand why they had to cap it off the race itself. It, uh, because you just, it, yeah, you're going to walk. Somebody, somebody screws up up front and it's going to stop the whole group. Surprisingly, that was, that was pretty cool. A lot of, a lot of people out there are, are really pleasant. You know, usually you expect, I've been in mountain bike races where somebody screws up and stops and you can hear the collective groaning and signing, sighing that people have to get off their bikes, but, uh, not here. Everybody's pretty cool about it. Hell, I rode alongside a guy on a fat bike in, and in jeans. I don't know if that says how slow I am, but that, that guy was pretty fucking impressive. So I don't know. I'm jumping all over the place. I'm, this is my fourth cup of coffee this morning. So if you're in the, if you're in the lottery group, you're going to get held off. I honestly think I could have done it in, well, let's not get too cocky, but around the 10 hour mark, if that first hour and a half were a little bit more open. And that's the problem with being in that lottery group. You are the last group to go off. You're behind all the qualifiers. You're behind the freaking amazing fast guys. So, uh, I mean, if you, if you're going to get in the lottery, you're just going to have to resign to that fact and, and not get all pissed off when something happens. What was that? Two, three. I learned how to fuel. I definitely learned how to fuel. I talked to you guys about that before I, I headed down there about some races that just didn't, I mean, rides that just didn't work. I just wasn't fueling right. And, um, I definitely learned that in the process, 400 calorie bottles. I found out the way to make a 400 calorie water bottle and the beauty of cliff blocks, not an endorsed product from the Pat filler podcast, but those cliff blocks were great. Oh man. I, there was the t- tail end. They were all I could eat. I did a cliff bar. Um, some people were eating sandwiches, shit like that. I, all I wanted was just kind of that gelatin squeezy, just kind of because I just didn't, nothing sounds good after that far into an event. So I was drinking a lot of my fuel and I know now how to get to the finish stronger than I have in over my 30 years of bike racing. Maybe it was ignorance. I don't know, but, uh, it was, it was really I, I felt halfway decent. Yeah, I was exhausted, but I, I actually could keep pedaling. It wasn't my body shutting down in those final miles. Where am I? Number three. Number four. I, as I think I said earlier, the people there are really cool. Uh, I, I'm going to get a little cheesy here. My family was the best support crew ever. My wife and kid were down there with me, and um, it was so cool doing that and being a part. Yeah, it was about me and them helping me, but um, we all had a really good time down there. The other riders were supportive. Even when my legs locked up, oh, you guys, I cramped at one point in the race. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, legs locked up. 
right at the top of this climb, power line climb. If you know the ride, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, just imagine, you know, I'm I'm probably 10 hours into this damn thing. Get to the summit of this climb, hop on my bike like I'm a pro cyclocrosser and just one leg hit first and then that was it. I was standing in the middle of the trail, both legs locked up, unable to do anything except look at people and go, <laughs> dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> It was not pretty, but everybody was really cool about that. You know, hey man, you need help? No, I'm, I'm okay. Give me, give me. Oh shit! The spectators were even cool. Even out in the middle of nowhere, you'd come across some people with just standing there. There were a couple guys that you know they were my only letdown because they wouldn't trade my bike for their really nice camper van. I was at that point. I know I feel ashamed. Number five. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to, I guess I'll, I'll, whatever. Number five. Am I just going to go with a five list? Yeah, I'm going to go with a five list. Certain things aren't necessarily what you would expect. You know, you build an event into your head about what you're going to think. The triathletes building Kona into this incredible mythical land. Uh, the, the, the roadies imagining the classics as being some amazing, you know, chapel. Of, of cobblestones or something like that. And I guess for, for me building, I, I, I had a vision of what this place was going to be like. I'd never been to the town of Leadville, Leadville before. I had no real preconceived notions about what, well, I know I did is what I'm saying. I had this idea of what everything was going to be like. And um, there were a couple things that surprised me. Leadville Leadville's a mining town, you guys. It's it's a brick mining town that was basically taken over by outdoorsies and hippies. And I mean that in the best possible way. It's not this glorified mecca of mountain biking. It's 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 a working man's town. And I'm sure there are a lot of those people still there. A lot of brick buildings. Not the most attractive area, um, you know, in and outside of it. A lot of abandoned cars, a lot of gas stations that you're not sure they're open or not. Where a guy comes out polishing a wrench that he's been polishing for the past 15 minutes. When you break down, you ask for how much the repairs are. They say how much you got. That kind of a feel. Like like the scene from Vacation, you know, when Chevy Chase crashes the car and they get it towed to that town. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of like that. For example, Floyd's of Leadville is not what you would expect this beautiful farm owned by an ex-Tour de France winner who had his title stripped away because he took more testosterone than a prize-winning horse. Um, Floyd's of Leadville is a house with a sign. I, I think I saw a mattress outside. I'm not bashing Floyd for what he's doing, but I, I don't know why. When I was leaving, I imagined Floyd you know, standing amongst the farm. A big pot farm or something like that. No, it's just a house, right? When you get to the right when you're pulling into town, brown and white house. Well, white house with brown trim, sign out front. That's it. You walk in. You, th- I, I didn't walk in. I was afraid I was going to walk into Floyd's, le- you know, living room, and he's going to be sitting there with a bag of Doritos and a big smile on his face. The anti. Oh, uh, yeah. Other things that I aren't what I expected. For example, the anti cramp drink they give away 
I'm not going to mention the name because I don't know 100% if I endorse the product or not. I told you about locking up my legs. You're thinking, hey, crap, this is perfect timing. About Honestly, within the next half hour after locking up my legs, I come across these signs saying, you're almost there. We got the anti-cramp drink. It's going to be held out for free. There's a, a fairly attractive young lady with a big cooler there going, hey, I'll help you. Grab one of these. You know, they're in ice and anything at that point, liquid, ice, anti-cramp. Give it to me. And it was that 100% belief that it's going to be this magic elixir. And so I grabbed it, cracked it open, and slammed it down. A little tiny vial of a bottle, maybe I'm guessing three ounces. Slam it back like it was a shot and you were a frat boy in college. Be ready for it, you guys. Because this stuff tastes like a mix between cinnamon and fresh jalapenos. It was not what I expected, especially when you're approaching the, you know, 10 and a half, almost 11 hour mark in a, in a bike race. I, I think it, I think it stops cramps simply because your body has something else to focus on. Everything is just trying to focus on the torturous battery acid you just threw down your throat. What else surprised me? Oh, yeah, the Tour de France guys aren't exactly all fast on all bikes. There were some guys there. Laurent Tendam was there. I, I thought the guy was going to haul ass. I mean, the guy is a stud on a bike. The guy can suffer. But, um, man, I got to tell you, those high-end mountain bike guys can just cr- Todd Wells alone. I saw him for like a second. I was going uphill. He was going downhill. The course is an out and back. And there's a second when you hear up ahead – Rider up. And holy shit, they come by going so freaking fast. You know, they're doing it around the eight hour mark. I was 11 hours and I think eight, maybe 20 something. Those guys are machines. Those guys are studs. I do not want mountain biking to ever take a backseat to what the some of the roadies are doing. Because those guys are, those guys are cool. Those guys are impressive. And they can do some amazing stuff on a long ass brutal ride. So there you go. That's that's I I needed to sum up that ex that experience. I had, I had been talking about it for what six months on this podcast. It was time I probably summed it up. My son did ask me if I was going to do it again. I, I don't know. In fact, he asked me right after I got off the bike, and that was one of those things. You know, you break the rules when you ask somebody that. I think because he wanted to do it. I really don't know. Having done it, um, it was it, it was something to go through. I want other challenges like it. I don't know if I don't know if I'm going to do it again. We'll have to see. I would honestly recommend it to anybody, though. I think it's what bike racing's becoming. A challenge for everyone. It's you against others, but it's also you against the course. It's not just the race for the guys at the front. And I think, you know, we're seeing that with as we talked about on the show with Fondos growing in popularity, where the sport's growing. Um, I think I think cycling needs to kind of figure out something like that. Mountain biking, I think, has it. I don't know if road racing has it yet. Just because you get dropped, you're dropped. The race is over. But I'd recommend it for sure. Big thanks to Josh Colley, the race director. I'd like to thank the people of Leadville 
as I said, not the town you'd expect, but everybody there was really cool. Maybe it's because of the event themselves. Thank John Stamstead for the advice on the podcast. My family for letting me train this summer instead of painting the house. <laughs> as well as their great race support. It was epic, you guys. It was honestly epic. Speaking of which, we stayed in Breckenridge and then to drive to Leadville. It's it's a sto- it's definitely a tale of two cities. You get rich, glitzy, really high end in Breckenridge, and then you go to Leadville where it's just like, well, you got Floyd sitting in his yard smoking a bowl. Oh, I got to thank my friend Scott Bork of Ska Brewing. Kick-ass beer after the race. Gave me some beer samples. Holy shit, they were delicious. So there we go. Now what do I do with this belt buckle? Well, well, in the meantime, I do have more catching up to do, and I'm going to do it at the tail end after the interview here because I know you guys probably many times want to get straight to that interview. So fine, fine, I'm going to get to the interview. Um, so I'll, I'll talk on the other end of that. Um, Steve Perino, you guys know Steve Perino. You've heard Steve Perino's voice. The great thing about this interview is is you're going to hear Steve Perino the, in the tone and the style in which many are used to, kind of over the phone, calling it in because he's that guy on the back of the moto in all those races that we listen to great broadcaster does it across the board um you know his he started off with with downhill alpine skiing and uh, he has moved into cycling and i don't know about you guys i i think in his five years in the broadcasting chair i guess we could say in cycling he started to figure it out i know a lot of you guys were busting his balls earlier on and he knows that a lot of you guys were busting his balls earlier on so let's see what he thinks about it. Good guy. Let's see what you think. Steve Perino on the Pack Filler Podcast. Okay, everybody. Today's guest should sound pretty familiar. If you're from the States, if you watch cycling, and if you care any way about the goings-on inside the Peloton, you have heard this man's voice providing such. His work in television broadcasting been constant. Dating, I'm not going to make him sound old, but he's all far back as to the Outdoor Life Network. How's that for an older reference? Work also garnered garnered him great recognition, especially in the alpine skiing world. Just receiving an FIS Journalist Award for his service bringing ski racing to the public. Let's welcome to the podcast, Steve Perino. How are you, man? That was uh, that was quite an intro. Well, well I'm, not I'm, I'm, I'm doing a whole lot better now. <laughs> you know, I like to start off on a high note, and then it just goes to crap from there. So, right. <laughs> well, I'll see if I can facilitate in that manner. Please do. Yeah. Uh, First of all, you know, I, if it's okay to mention, and I can delete this later, how's your back, man? You mentioned having surgery recently. What's going on? Everything okay? That is actually, uh, we're prepping for that. Whole family's prepping for dad not being able to do anything uh, for a short while. That'll be on Thursday morning. So, oh, so um, it's coming. Yeah. I was uh, I was suffering a little bit. I, I would have to like lay my moto suit down on the ground at the Tour de France every morning, and kind of like slither in. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I thought it was an old, old. Actually, it is an old injury from ski racing, but uh, oh. thought one that would go away. But turns out, I've got a pretty good bulge in the disc, and the doc's gonna. He said he's gonna make me feel better. Oh, okay. Well, so I just just wanted to make sure it wasn't actually from all the miles out on the moto. 
No, oddly enough, that was like that's the only position where there's relief. It's, it's <laughs> kind of like that sitting position. Really? So if I could only just stay there all the time, I'd be fine. <laughs> so here we go. As you you know, may or may not know, uh, you know, podcasting is such a huge, booming industry. Uh, this show focusing mainly on on cycling and the and the sport and the culture and the life around that. And you through your work with races such as the Tour Tour California, many others, and obviously the most recently the Olympics. You kind of been come to be known as the man inside the race for U.S. viewers. So I guess my question here is, how does a U.S. ski team member become a voice in American cycling? <laughs> the inside the race. It's, you know, it's funny because it was while I was broadcasting skiing for uh, what was then Universal Sports, which has now been purchased by NBC, yeah. where, you know, everyone is kind of circling inside the same building. And I knew that there was an opportunity uh, coming up in cycling. And at that point, uh, I was just doing winter sports. I kind of wanted to branch out. And while I, I, I wouldn't say I was an aficionado of cycling, I'd always been fascinated by it. And as I told my producer at the time, it's like, I'm not really an indoor cat, which is the <laughs> studio work, which you end up doing a lot of. I'm an outdoor cat. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you put me in the most uncomfortable position outdoors <laughs> uh, in a sport that's like skiing, and, and cycling is in a lot of ways, yeah. I said, I, I promise I will, over time, I will figure this thing out. And it's taken me a while to figure it out, but that was my plea at the time, five years ago. And here I am five years later, and I've become a huge fan of the sport in a way that when I grew up in skiing, I didn't have the same fascination. You know, there was not these moments that blew me away because I'd grown up in it. Whereas yeah. cycling has consistently blown me away because I I really didn't know what I was getting into. I thought I did, but I clearly didn't. Now your your background in broadcasting itself. I mean, obviously skiing was where the source was. That was where that for the listeners who don't know that was where that was your sport. And um, how did how did you go from a competitive skier, uh, U.S. national team, and all of a sudden decide, okay, once I hang up my skis, so to speak. I'm going into broadcasting. How does that match come about? Right. Well, the simple answer to that question is that Todd Brooker went to Burger College. Okay. And I'll back up <laughs> and tell you what that means. But when I, w when I retired uh, from ski racing, or I should say more accurately, I was retired from the USC team. Uh, I was going to the University of Utah, kind of picking away at school because the U.S. ski team was in Park City and they were helping put us through school at the University of Utah. I had gotten into the communication department and I always thought, you know, maybe one day I'd, I'd be into, you know, getting into broadcasting, but I didn't have any idea how. Um, and I was coaching ski racing at the time up in Snowbird and I started doing writing for a magazine, the industry magazine, the moral equivalent, you know, of like cycling news in the world of skiing was Ski Racing Magazine out yeah. in Vermont. I wrote a few stories. They gave me a job. I was working there. And then Todd Brooker, who was really the voice uh, of alpine skiing uh, of the time, he opened up a Wendy's. And if you open up a Wendy's, you got to go to Burger College. And so he had to step down for three months. And so they needed someone to fill his shoes. And so some people put out some feelers. And I was actually asked, I didn't even go solicit it, I was asked to go audition with Bob Yaddy, who was a legend oh, yeah. in the outline world of broadcasting, and uh, and so I, I won the job, and I filled in for Brooker for those three months while he was toiling away at Burger College, 
And when he came back, they liked me enough so that they kept me on as the reporter. And that was at the time ESPN. Um, and so it just kind of, I started out as a writer, continued as a writer for the next five or six years. And then over that time, it became more broadcasting, more broadcasting to where that was all I was doing. And, and we're somewhat reluctantly, I, I kind of gave up that writing is very hard. It's a hard way to make a living. Yeah. Uh, it's a noble way, but it's very difficult. And so I just focus entirely on the broadcasting, the easy way out. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. Well, I mean, just to kind of pull back the curtain here a little bit and let you know, I started out as a ski racer, did all that kind of stuff. I looked, I was doing research on this and I saw you went to Burke Mountain Academy. My dad was really wanting to make sure I went in there, went there and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I've been watching yeah. Bob and, and Todd and, and all those guys been listening to those guys forever. So these, oh my God, you're not you're not talking over my head. I promise. But um, okay. so for skiing, um, go ahead. No, no, uh, go. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I didn't realize that about you, but oh yeah, yeah. you feel the same way about. It. I mean, I've lucked into it, but yeah. yeah. Off you go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and okay, so tying it, I guess, into cycling. Did you ever do cycling as as a dry land sport for for your skiing preparation or anything like? That's how I got into it. it yeah, I did, and yeah. you know, more, much more on a mountain bike. That was where oh, okay. I felt comfortable. Um, and I, and I had a road bike, and I'd ride, you know, but I'd ride on my own. Um, and then. You know, in the last 15 years, I got a little bit more into road racing. When I when you move to Bend, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know that's what everyone does. And I like to this day, my cycling IQ is below average for <laughs> living in Bend, Oregon. Um, but I did, and you know, I'd go into races here and there, and and get soundly whooped. Uh, but I spent a fair amount of time, particularly on the mountain bike, always living in, in mountain country, yeah. and uh, just back today from mountain bike riding back. Oh. Okay, man. Two days before a surgery. Jeez. Okay. Now, <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's the only position that feels good. Yeah. Either that, or you've just got a pain tolerance that, or you're into that sort of thing. But um, how did? Uh, <laughs> so you you went into you were heavily into skiing. Obviously, many many years of broadcasting through that, and then the cycling gig comes up. Um, how, what was that learning curve like? Trying to get involved. With I was horrified. Yeah. Honestly, like I, I, I wanted, I wanted to spread my wings. Um, and yet I know, I know what it sounds like when someone who's covering skiing doesn't know skiing. Yeah. You see right to that person. And I was, I knew there was no way for me to not be that guy because, you know, as, as geeked out as skiers are cyclists and cycling fans are maybe one tick more, yeah. uh, Let's call it just geeks, the Freds. They just, they know everything. And so there was no way I was going to be able to fool these people. And so I knew what I was up against. And so I had a few people that I reached out to. And one was Steve Johnson, who formerly retired as the uh, president of USA Cycling, who used to, when I was on the USC team, be the head of sports science. And so I knew Steve. And Steve was very kind to put me in touch with people out in the world of cycling and I just called people up and I interviewed them and I said, you know, tell me everything you know. Chris Horner lived in Bend, Oregon. Yeah. I invited him over for dinner and, you know, Chris Horner, he <laughs> barely pauses for punctuation and that was awesome. Right? <laughs> He's three hours straight. Uh, and so that's how I did it. Um, but to go back to your original question, it was, it, it was a lot for someone who's used to knowing the sport from day one. 
Yeah. And now to go into a sport where I, I really knew very little. Well, and I mean, little things like name pronunciation and, and things along those lines had to have been, okay, you know, I don't know about you, I'd have to spell everything out phonetically if I hadn't spent the time and my years in bike racing understand how to pronounce Abdujaparov, who was an old name, you know, and things like that. Um, what was the... Um, reception like in terms of reaction from i'm sure fans probably gave you some crap at first but um the writers and being able to approach writers and team directors what was that reception like yeah you know it's interesting is that, and, and to this day it's still true is that my relationship is primarily with directors and the staff of the team so every morning particularly when i'm on the moto i'm trying to gather all this information and anyone who's ever been to the Tour de France knows that the cyclists are not out lingering about outside the bus. Yeah. And so if you want to get as much information as you can in the shortest period of time, you're going to the directors, you're going to the mechanics, you're going to the staff, maybe the doctors. Um, and so those are the people I develop relationships with. And I was very honest with them. I said, listen, I, you know, people are, in fact, much more helpful if you don't try to pretend you know more than you do. And yeah. then they, they're much more forthcoming and they fully explain things. If they think you already know, half the explanation gets left out. So that was sort of my tactic was to disarm by saying, listen, I don't know that much. Here's what I'm curious about. Can you explain it to me? And I would not leave them alone until I was satisfied that I understood what they were telling me. And so that's what I'm an outdoor cat. I like to talk to people about their sport. I like to understand the sport. I'm an athlete first. And so I, I'm not out there trying to get the scoop. I'm out there trying to understand. And so that, I guess, if I had a tactic, that was it. And that, and for the average United States listener, that's probably a better source of information if you're able to explain it on those terms. Is Are the interviews just kind of on the fly? You're bouncing around from car to car? Or is there a plan in attack? Or is it, oh, my gosh, somebody's in the break. I need to go talk to that car. I, you know, bouncing back and forth between cars is a pretty good way to put it. Um, the, yeah, what I will do again in the morning, I've got, you know, there are, there's about an hour and a half before the race begins where the buses show up and I will hit everyone I know based on, you know, what kind of day is it? You know, if we yeah. are to the sprint stage, you're going to talk to the sprint teams. You might talk to whoever's got the yellow jersey, how you can protect them. But basically, you're trying to talk to these various teams um, that you know have an ambition that day. Some people are just going to sit in, you blow them off. When things then start to happen, and, and what maybe, I don't know if everyone realizes this or not, but I don't see the race. I, I, I don't, the only way I know what's going on is because I'm listening to Phil and Paul yeah. in my ear. And so I am reacting to what they're saying. And then apart from that, I am seeing what's getting shot out the back. So as soon as people go off camera, I have really, I have tremendous insight as to what's happening off camera. So I use those cues, which I'm better at picking up now, to then, then you react and then you go to the, the cars and you try and get there. It's not always that easy, but it's more on the fly to try to react to the race. It's up to Phil and Paul to paint the broad picture. And I'm just filling in the little gaps and I'm trying to respond to what they are talking about. Do you have to provide material to them at certain uh, segments throughout the broadcast? Do you have to say, okay, we're going to go inside the race with Steve five times an hour or something along those lines? 
No, you, you know, I try not to. Uh, my producer was amazing at, at spinning like 10 plates at the same time. Yeah. Will just come to me and he'll say, you got anything? And if I don't, I, I do not want to be on the air talking about nothing. Yeah. So th that'll be, or I will be listening to Phil and Paul, or maybe I'm listening to the guys in the studio, Christian Bob and Todd Harris. And I will hear something that they're talking about and they're, they're speculating based on what they're seeing. And either I may have already got the answer or have a different opinion. That's not mine, but that I've heard and try and drop it when it's then timely. So I try and have an arsenal of information when I start out the day and then I'm listening to what they're saying. And if there's a kind of a dangling question out there, mm -hmm. I try to hunt it down. That's pretty much the tactic. And so I will say to the producer, I can add, and it's that simple. And they will get it to me sometimes abruptly, sometimes minutes later. Sometimes they come to me. I have no idea they're coming to me. So you got to <laughs> be on your toes. Okay. Sounds like you have to be uh, a master of improvisation to a certain extent, but you also have to be comfortable in that environment. Is is it always, I mean, I mean well, it can't be unless you're, you have moto drivers all over the, over the world, but how, how's that relationship with the driver and that partnership? How do you guys communicate between each other? Yeah, that is, I mean, my, my moto pilot is like, he's my hero. He's, he's awesome. I, I believe, I, I can't confirm this, but he is the oldest man ever to have uh driven a uh a bike in the peloton so he's 66 years old his first year was Perry roubaix 1984 oh, man. the guy has so much experience and they you know because they're doing it all the time they sort of know everyone they know all the directors and oftentimes they're team directors who don't speak english and it's typically the french or there'll be the italians who speak french but they don't speak english and so i will have my pilot do the interview and then report back to me. So I'll give him the questions and, and he tries to, you know, he's piloting. Yeah. I've got the mic in the car. He's trying to ask questions, you know, so he's, he's awesome. Uh, and so my relationship <laughs> with him is very close and we keep in touch, uh, not all the time, but throughout the year, uh, I consider him a, you know, a friend and what he does out on the road is it's, wow. it is amazing what those guys do out on the road. And I, I don't think there's a, a tremendous amount of appreciation, particularly now because of all the accidents. Well, yeah. Uh, how good the best are. Well, that's, and, and that takes us to that, that issue dealing with rider safety being a huge issue right now, as you being out there in the thick of it with a, one of the accomplished uh, motor drivers, do you think things are getting worse or better? And are, are there, you know, are there that many more motos out there, or do you have a reason as to why things have been kind of rising in terms of those collisions? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I guess I'm reluctant to, to chime in as someone that has a tremendous history in the sport that yeah. can tell you what's changed. You know, I have asked these same questions to people that, uh, that do know more about it and have a longer history. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, are there more motos in the Peloton? I don't think there are. Uh, and, and that's not what people tell me. There's not more motos in the, at least, you know, in the last decade. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that there, you know, some motos, the photography motos, those are the ones that are, you know, they're still photographers. Yeah. They have to, in order to, to do their job, they need to buzz through 
the Peloton back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, right? Because they have to go Absolutely. get ahead, yeah. get position, take the pictures. What we do is we rarely, you know, as, as reporters, and there aren't that many of us, um, we're pretty stationary behind. Um, and so it's really the, the motorcycles that are passing through that I think that is, that is the real dark art of trying to get through. And I don't know, and that, that's where most of the accidents happen, yeah. I want to say. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I have the answer to why the, we've had these horrible accidents of late. But I, you know, I've seen, I go on the blogs now and again, I, I, you know, and yeah. people are very accusatory of the, the level of skill. You know, and I think it's more uh, communication. I think it's more, you know, there's a lot of where are these putting, where are we putting these races? How yeah. small are the roads? Um, and you hear a lot of that from the riders too. Now, as everything's more competitive, you've got more riders that are fitting in a smaller space, right? Whereas back in the day, everyone was spread out a little bit more because the level of competition wasn't quite as tight. You know, now yeah. everyone's getting to the end of the race. And now it, you know, it's pretty tight up until the end of the race. So that same road that, you know, accommodated an entire Peloton, you know, back in the day, now everyone's kind of squished in there. So yeah. I think that's probably a contributing factor as well. Well, and you mentioned skills in order in able to do some of these things. Well, actually, no, I have another thought here in terms of there was quite a bit of controversy just simply in Rio at the Olympic course about the safety of courses, about these type of issues. But then I heard both sides of that argument. I heard some writers saying, well, um, there are crashes because people are taking more chances. It's not necessarily the course itself. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, yeah, you know, and that was one, I think anyone who saw the crash of the Dutch girl shot oh, man, yeah. by the person with the, with, the, with the iPhone or whatever camera yeah. he was using, did you see that footage? Yeah. That wasn't part of the broadcast footage, but you were able to see the moment of the crash and then two minutes later, yeah. the first responder. And everyone was aghast at that gap. But I, but I can tell you from my experience, and again, I, I, I think people listening at this point should know that's five years <laughs> that I'm in the Peloton. So I do see a lot of that world. That's about as fast as you could possibly get to her. 
the, yeah. the idea of overtaking riders on that descent. No way. With a vehicle, let alone a motorcycle, like no chance. And there's no way to really, again, no race radios in this case. So there's no way to really communicate that these riders should stop. You know, which is a weird thing to do, right? Yeah. You'd have to really get someone's attention and say, you need to stop racing your one-day race at the Olympics. Make or break. moment that happens every four years. Yeah. Right? You're just not going to get them to stop. Uh, and so the first people that stopped, you know, was the Dutch car and the Dutch doctor. And then the ambulance was immediately behind them. So that response, given the nature of bike racing, was really quite reasonable. So if, if that's one of the questions you're asking, you know, my position is that they did a great job with her. It was just hard to see her lay there unconscious, yeah. having crashed the way she did for two minutes. Super uncomfortable for any person to watch that absolutely and i i think the a lot of the controversy is we're hearing from riders saying courses aren't safe enough anymore um but then you also hear from some other riders saying that it's not necessarily the safety of the course it's this the risks that riders are taking in order to i mean especially it's something like the olympics right one day race yeah every four years i mean i mean you look at good finishes can interrupt no, yeah. no, sorry, go ahead, Patrick. No, you're exactly right. A good finish there is, is a career. I mean, make or break. Yeah. So I did an interview with Fuglesong, who yeah. got the silver medal, uh, and he said to me, you know, first of all, the men did that three times, and when does the crashing take place? On the third lap. Yeah. You, know, you can sort of you can glean from that is that they're perfectly capable at 90%, uh, you know, racing at 90% of making it down that descent. Not a problem. Now the race is on. But they've seen that descent now, which is unusual, three times. That's more like what I did as a downhill racer. We inspected every inch of the course, two miles long. You knew it inside and out. Absolutely. Cyclists, and that's what the one thing that blows me away, they kind of go into these descents, you know, kind of blind. But in this case, they'd seen it twice, Fuglesong told me there was, a, there was a lump, like a lump, the way he described it, a lump in that turn. He knew it was there. Everyone who rode that descent must have seen it in the previous two. Nibali just pinned it in the apex of that turn right in that area where Fuglesong had seen it now twice, uh, and Nibali just chose to go for the glory. And so it was a knowable risk that he took. Uh, at least as it was described to me by the guy that got the silver medal, saying to me, sometimes it, it, is, it does pay to not risk everything. Yeah. I believe was his final quote to me. Well, I also think Mark, Mark Ghirardelli said it, go back to skiing, either I crash or I win. <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, and, there's, and sometimes, again, I, I think when we saw that descent for the first time, the people that, you know, those gutters are really unforgiving. For sure it's dangerous, but it's it's knowable. Everyone had done some riding around it. It was a little bit more dicey, you might say, for the women because they only descended that once. And so they had they didn't get to forerun it, if you will. Gotcha. Yeah. They they pinned it. Uh or those that wanted to win, they were at presumably the max of their ability with a little drizzle on the road. Yeah. Uh, on that one and only descent. And so it, maybe it was more dangerous for them. And I heard some people say, you know, the people that rode in that area 
the, the riders from that area. They say, you know, we rarely go down that. We usually climb it and descend the other way. Oh, wow. Now, I guess I'm going to jump subjects. I read a tweet from you earlier in the year, and, I'm, and don't, it's not incriminating, I promise. Um, <laughs> during the tour about the state of cycling's popularity, um, you commented on the issue that Tom Dumoulin brought up about the long stages leading to the boring right. down of cycling. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, does he, does Tom, did Tom have a point and are we running into a situation where these long stages are, are taking fans away? You know, I asked around again, you know, I'm not the one to opine about these things cause I just don't have the history. So I asked this question and what the directors would tell you and, and a number of other people have been doing it for a long time is that, you know, we can do one of two things is we can ride, you know, most of the route or, uh, and then you will have to have these long stages in order to connect the dots or you have long transfers and no one likes either. So would you, you know, for the viewers, would you like to have these more intense stages where, you know, the action is, is more beginning to end or, and then have the long transfers, which nobody likes, or do you want to have the long transfers, which is a little bit more like the days of old? And, you know, now and again, I, I, I guess the answer was, you know, now and again, it, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. And ultimately, we got to get around the country. It may not make for great TV. Um, that one particular day, as I recall, the average speed was something like, 19 miles an hour. <laughs> so that was exceptional. And I remember being, that was the one day when my back was not comfortable. And I was on that moto for, I don't want to say six hours. Oh man. Uh, so that is, you know, that's boring. I mean, cycling is, there's very few, you know, it can't sustain a six hour crescendo. You have no. to be really ensconced in the sport to want to watch all six hours. Well, yeah, and and that's exactly about the, that point about it. When I, when I will watch races like the tour with friends and family, a lot of them will look at me and say, "What what do you, what keeps you going? Why are you still fascinated with what's happening?" And a lot of it has to do with just about any sport. It's the stories behind the riders, behind the teams, the things that uh, you and Phil and Paul do to fill in those times and give us some of that. I guess the the soap opera or the drama that is happening within the sport itself. So. Once I guess it's a, it's a learning curve issue, but those long stages are a part of the beast, and and I guess those long stages are also what make the sport that much or that event that much more epic. Right. Yeah. And that is, in some ways, those are days where my job is actually easier because it's very easy to get to the cars. There's not people flying in and you know out of the caravan. Um, Everyone's in a jovial mood. Team Sky seems to be able to, for once, relax so you can talk to them. Uh, and so there's certain opportunities, you know, for me, but that's awfully selfish. It, it, you know, is it compelling for the viewer? You'd be better at answering that question than me. But um, it takes, again, it takes a certain kind of person uh, that is willing to, you know, sit around for six hours hoping that some good stories come out of it. Because the action in and of itself, I mean, you know it's going to come down to the last yeah. 13 minutes or whatever the case may be. So your work takes you all over the world um, with what appears to be literal no time off. <laughs> um, how, first of all, how do you keep going? Uh, is is there a burnout rate, and uh, how does it affect your family life? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's rough. Uh, I can tell you that my wife, uh, who knew a whole lot more about cycling and is a bike racer herself and runs her own bike race in Bend, um, she was the one that was really excited for me to get involved in the tour. Now she's kicking herself. Uh, <laughs> but she, for the first four years, she would come over for the last week and a half. Uh, and so we got to enjoy that together. Uh, we now have an 11 month old. And so that, that's going to be put on, on hold for a while anyway. But as you know, this summer was brutal. Four weeks at the tour, six days at home, then off to the Olympics. Um, that's hard. Uh, and it's, it's not the best way. Uh, you know, that I can tell you there's people in television that put a lot more days on the road uh, than I do, but I do not take, you know, I'm not trying to get every job that comes down the road. I happen to really love what I do and I have enough time off so that I can keep loving it and being passionate about it, but still get a chance to, to be at home and, you know, it's strange for a while that when it gets really busy, I don't get to see my kids ski. They ski race. And so like, I don't know. I don't get to see them do it. So I, I try to make sure that my dance card isn't too, too full. Yeah. And this time of year, I've got two months off and in the springtime, it's two months off. And, but come winter and the dead of summer, it's pretty, it's run and gun. Absolutely. And- you you mentioned being an outdoor kind of a guy. Is uh, there's no desire ever to go, especially in the tour behind the desk? Yeah, not really, not really. Um, you know, I, I always welcome a challenge, and being you know studio host yeah. is an altogether different challenge. Um, but I think after a short period of time, I would certainly. Being on the back of the motorcycle, um, I think is about as cool a way to make a living as there might be. <laughs> I really do. Uh, even if it's raining, you're in it. You're in the thick of it. You know, if someone you know told me you're going to go up and do you know reporting on Everest or whatever like that. That would appeal to me. Just being in the elements, it, it's it's very visceral. I, I, that's why I like you know. Even though I do play by play for alpine skiing. When it comes Olympic time or big events, sometimes they'll slide me over to reporter, and I'm up at eight, nine, ten thousand feet yeah. in the elements, and it just—I I like that setting. I'm much more comfortable like that than spending all my time indoors. So of all the people you work with, I mean, you mentioned Bob Biatti. Um, we know your time with Phil and Paul, and and those types of of characters. I even saw a lengthy discussion with you and, and Jens Voigt. Uh, that was really interesting because you guys were kind of freeform just discussing the sport of it's all. Um, yeah. are there, do you have any favorites or has there any, ever been a moment where you've been like, oh my God, this is this will never happen again. This is lightning in a bottle. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first got into television, I was sure everyone um, was going to be jerk <laughs> and there was going to be full of egos and it was going to be cutthroat. And I found quite the opposite. And in fact, the further up the food chain you go, it seems the nicer people are. You know, really? it was, I've always found that, you know, Phil and Paul are one of the great sports announcing teams of all time. And that was long before I met them uh, when I'd listened to these, you know, sing song uh, versions of the Tour de France. I mean, and <laughs> meeting Phil Liggett, I think he's absolutely every bit as charming uh, on the air as he is off the air. Um, 
my wife just did something in a, in a magazine recently, and they asked her who her celebrity crush was. And she put down <laughs> Phil Liggett. So that's the other thing about Phil Liggett. I can't leave my wife with him for two seconds. I can't attend it. So there, there's that, too. Um, and Paul Sherwin uh, is an absolute comedian. And, and that is interesting because you don't always get that on the air. No. You get a little more straight-laced Paul Sherwin, but the Paul Sherwin off the air is just one soundbite after another. He's just a comic. Uh, and Bob Roll is you know, every bit as yeah. um, interesting and whacked out on the air. <laughs> like, there's no difference. Bob on the air, Bob off the air, it's, it's the same. Uh, and so a lot of characters, Christian Vandeveld, you know, we spent some time, we did some stand-up paddle surfing down at, at the Olympics, but couldn't be a nicer guy. So I, I am really, I have to say, across the board, um, particularly in cycling where I'm the outsider, I've, I've felt welcome there, and, and, and Jens, is, Jens is Jens. I mean, that guy gives so much of himself 24-7, and uh, he couldn't be nicer to people. And that guy's got some demand on him. People will be yelling at him while he's broadcasting. Jens, can we get a picture? Oh, man, yeah. Sure, one second. <laughs> Let me finish this. Um, how about interviews? Uh, anybody you've, you've had in terms of an athlete you've been able to speak to that has been um, above and beyond what you would have expected? Um, you know, again, it's, I don't interview the athletes yeah. that often yeah. and it's always a pleasure when I do. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of who I just found, uh, you know, Taylor Finney is very introspective. You know, you can ask him whatever question, but he's kind of, kind of, he's got his own thoughts and he, <laughs> he thinks about the sport very differently. And so I sort of enjoyed, um, talking to him and he's a guy that listens to you. And I sort of enjoy that about when someone, when an interviewee listens to you and you feel like you're having a conversation versus a very stilted kind mm -hmm. of, what are your tactics today? How are you going to win the race? You know, those sort of early morning interviews, not the best way to get to know people when there's 50 <laughs> people asking the same question, but some of those sit downs, Chris Horner, I find very engaging. Um, honestly, he's a great storyteller. Uh, and I think enjoys telling stories. So I yeah. like Chris Horner's version of the world of cycling. I'm I like Chris Horner's version of the world. I, I do too. <laughs> and I'm really surprised he's never stepped into a, a broadcasting type of a position. Even oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only because, and they, they've been, you know, at times I know interested, but he won't get off the bike. Who knows <laughs> when he'll get off the bike. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. Exactly. As long as he can keep going. So uh, we mentioned earlier you in Ketchum, um, moving to Ketchum. Um, we both know your ties in Bend, but we won't talk in about that earlier. But um, was it Sun Valley, or what was the reason to to move there? Was it just specifically for the skiing? Yeah, you know, I mean, we we say it uh, <laughs> kind of jokingly, but we you know we left Bend to make room for the people that were moving in. Oh um, yeah. It really, it, you know, it, there's a, a whole bunch of factors that go into it. But, you know, when I moved there, it was 40,000 people, and the people that lived there before me thought 40,000 was way too many. <laughs> and now it's 90,000 people. Um, and we were here for the U.S. Alpine Championships uh, last spring. And I've got a lot of friends here. Somehow it's not strange to me. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know, maybe we should try this. Really? And my kids race and it's a it's a more conducive place to do that so we just figured we'd give it a try so we rented our place out and 
Bend, Oregon, and renting from a friend uh, whose house is vacant here in Sun Valley. And it's much smaller. It's small town living. And, yeah. and so my, my wife, who's from Vermont, and myself, that's what we prefer. And well, we've got great friends in Bend, and it's an amazing place. It was starting to feel a little big. Yeah. So in your opinion, this is, I'm, I'm cha- I, this is a cycling podcast, but I am a rabid skier myself, so I, I got to know. You've been around, obviously. In your opinion, best skiing in the U.S. would be blank. The best skiing? In your opinion. In the U.S.? Yes. In my opinion. And I have my opinion. Having, so. been a, having been a coach at Snowbird, uh, when I was picking my way through school, you know, that snowbird is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's also gets some amazing crowds. And for that reason, snow basin, I think is fantastic, you know, for that variety of incredible snow. Um, as I already alluded to, I'm not a big fan of crowds. Uh, <laughs> and so snow basin is kind of a nice way to get some incredible skiing and it doesn't get panel with people. Um, you know, and if you really don't like crowds, Sun Valley. I mean, that, it's hard to beat Sun Valley. Yeah. It doesn't quite get the dumps, obviously, of, of snow, like Snow Basin and places like that. Uh, but for groomers and rip around at 55, 60 miles an hour, you can't beat Sun Valley. <laughs> well, personally, I, I, I'll give those to you. I'm a, I'm a tie between... What's, Ta- what's, your, what's your spot? I'm a tie between Taos, New Mexico, and Bridger Bowl, Montana. Uh-huh. Yeah. Bridger uh, Bowl's a tiny I've little place. Bridger Bowl's a tiny little place outside of Bozeman, Montana. Uh, just yeah. a local, one of those local hills kind of a thing like that. Right. And yeah, I'm, that mom and pop kind of small town. Absolutely. Appeal. Yep, yep, yep. Well, Steve, um, I, first of all, I love your, I love the work you do. My wife is always um, known for the fact that I've, I've been extremely jealous of what you do. But I've always thought that is the coolest job in cycling. And um, you took it five years ago, and you've been, you've been building it, and it shows that your extent. You've been working, you've been doing the homework, and um, you're providing a great voice for for cycling in the U.S. Thanks a lot. Oh, I, re- I really appreciate that, and it means a lot too, because I know you know a lot more about cycling than I do, so. Uh, if I can provide you with any information you didn't already know, then I've succeeded. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, thanks for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. You like him more now, don't you? He's a good guy. Really good guy. Hope the back surgery goes all right. Man, that that would be brutal. I still can't believe that he was okay to ride that moto for all those hours with a disc problem in his back. Hell, I pull a muscle and I whine like a baby. So as I said to you guys at the at the beginning of this show, I did have some more to catch up uh, just to get you guys up speed. It's been, God, it's been f- four or five weeks since I've done a show. So, uh, And as I said at the outset, I've honestly been on my bike once since climbing off in Leadville. Once. And that one ride within itself is something I needed to justify on this podcast. Mother Nature has spoken. I either need to take more time off or I am being punished for ignoring my bike. It's one of the two. You know, it's like it's like when you spend too much time with your boy or girlfriend, things get a little bit, okay, maybe I should I should take a little time. We should take a little, maybe a Saturday off, just go spend a little time away from each other. Maybe it's one of those or it's I have been ignoring her for 3 weeks straight. I come back, walk in the door, she says, "What the hell are you doing here, you ass?" I thought we were over. 
I think it's one of those two in terms of cycling with Mother Nature. As I said, I've been on my bike once. I'm going to start again. I'm going to start again. I promise. I'm not doing cross this year. I'm just not. I'm not ready for it. But my kid needed the car the other day. And so I, I was like, fine. You know, it's been a while since I've, I've ridden home from work. Weather's great. I'll take my bike to work and I'll, I'll just take the nice long way home and enjoy a ride. So I did. Changed clothes after work, hopped on my bike, rode away. Had loaded all my gear in the car already because my kid needed it. So he took off with the car and I took off on the bike home. Beautiful ride, nice weather, sunny day. Still in the you know upper 70s, low 80s here in the Northwest. And I get nice climbs, beautiful ride. Almost get about, I'm maybe about a mile away from my house. Nice residential area. Come to the top of a climb. I'm still actually, you know, my legs are a little tight because I haven't been on the bike in so long. And I, I come to the top of a climb. Didn't Wasn't going too terribly hard. You know, not like I'm gasping with my mouth wide open. Just kind of, you know, if you were breathing through your mouth and your mouth was just slightly open, you know, that kind of a thing. Why am I talking about my mouth? This is why I'm talking about my mouth. I think bees can sense when their season is coming to an end. And I think the bees, some bees are deciding, do I want to burn out or fade away? I had an incident with a bee who wanted to go out in style. It's as if Mother Nature said, Hey, bee, see that fucker over there? That guy's just been driving his car. He's been contributing to the problem. He claims to be an all-outdoorsy guy. But he's not. Bee, bee, you're going to die soon. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be Mr. B, the pussy who just died in the gutter slowly? Or do you want to go out in a blaze of glory like Butch and Sundance? You know, you could do it. Take him out. This bee did. You guys, this bee came at me, and I'm convinced, full bore, full speed. This bee had the accuracy of Deadshot. Was that Will Smith's character from Suicide Squad? I haven't seen the movie yet, but anyway, you get my point. B came at me full speed. He, I bet he was screaming his little B voice in some sort of a kamikaze bonsai. And he got, I don't know how he did it. He shot it perfectly, you guys. My mouth was not agape. Maybe struck one of my top teeth. That was it. Just bam, he hit my top teeth, was able to spin around. I think he he did it so he hit the top teeth, causing his body to flip over because the stinger's in the ass, right? And so he causing him to flip over, reverse, full bore, stinging me in the back of the throat. Full speed. I made a sound that sounds, I, I can only imagine, I'm so glad there weren't any kids nearby. It wasn't profanity. It was honestly part scream part choke part somebody just slit my throat i i can't mimic the sound because i would max out my mic levels bam 
I mean, I was, it was a choking scream at the same moment. And I think I might've gone false, Ah, you know, something like that while choking at the same time. Got me in the back of the throat. I had enough time. I think honestly, once he, he stung me in the back of the throat, his body just split in half. And, and I don't know where the top half went. I got the bottom half out. I spat it out. I honestly think that guy's in my stomach, just laughing it up and, and enjoying the IPA I had yesterday. But he, he got me. When, okay. And from there on out, I'm about a mile away from the house. So I'm riding along going, oh, shit, I hope that wasn't a bee. God, I hope that wasn't a bee. I just thought maybe it was just a big bug, you know, a big bug. And it was just gross. And that was all it was going to be. Maybe my tooth hurt because he just hit me so hard. Maybe the back of my throat hurt because he, he hit me so hard. I had an allergy problem when I was a child. I was swarmed by bees. They stung me all over the face, shut my face closed. Um, and, and since then, I think I honestly grew out of an allergy. I know some of you with medical degrees are going, you'd never grow out of an allergy. But I honestly had been stung many times throughout my life in different areas of my body. They have swollen up, but nothing, my heart didn't stop, anything like that. But they do swell up. This was a sting in the back of my throat. I got home on my bike thinking, okay, this is just adrenaline. I'm going to mellow out. I'm going to go grab a Benadryl, maybe pop a Benadryl. No Benadryl in the house. Nobody's at the house. Called my wife. Honey, where's the Benadryl? We don't have any. Go get some from the neighbor. Could you imagine walking up to the neighbors, just this big sweating, (laughs) drugs. Um, And so I I didn't go to the neighbors, but my wife, actually, she's really good about this kind of stuff. And she went, wait a minute, what happened? And I I tell her this stuff and that that I'm feeling kind of weird and, and things are happening. And I think I might honestly need to go to the ER. She says, okay, get to the ER. I said, I can't, I don't have a car. She gets in the car, she drives home. I'm sitting out on the front porch because I'm just like, I got to get in the car. I got to get to the ER. Things are feeling really weird down there. And uh, by the time she came to pick me up, I walk around to the passenger side, get into the car. She looks at me. She says, how are you? And I responded in a voice that sounded almost identically to, uh, you've seen the Princess Bride, Andre the Giant. Anybody want a peanut? I sounded like that. And she, she said, how are you? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> she just, her eyes got huge. She went, holy shit. I said, yeah, I think my throat's closing. We get down to the to the ER. Fortunately, we only live a couple blocks away from the hospital. You know, not a couple blocks, maybe a mile and a half, two miles. And uh, we walk into the ER and the lady says, hi, what can I do for you guys? Well, my husband got stung by a bee. Really? Are you feeling okay? Where would this sting you? In the back of the throat. <laughs> that almost sounds more like, uh, what's his name from The Hobbit? Gollum. Right, precious. Um, and the, the, she looks at me and she goes, okay, back of the throat. That's not good. My wife says, he never sounds like this. Yeah, this is not my normal voice. And they got me back super fast. The, the, the ER staff took great care of me. I did, however, have a... Uh, a nursing student insert my IV and I I have just the bruises now just going away. And it was like two weeks ago that I had this done. Um, and then they pumped me full of drugs 
pump me full of drugs and that which knocked me out for a while and uh apparently i'm better now but my throat was just shredded for about well definitely for about 24 hours and now i've got two EpiPens. so you know highest bidder anybody want an EpiPen? i'll, I'll sell them to you and they're not going to go cheap i hear those bad boys are going for a good three four hundred bucks a piece so and i've got a wheel set i'd really like to buy I'm kidding. I was terrified when I bought EpiPens. I was like, oh, shit, my insurance isn't going to cover this. I'm going to I said to the gal, can you please ring these up before charging me? Can you let me know how much they're going to be? I got a great insurance plan. They're only like 35 bucks. So I just got to go into an EpiPen business. Oh, my God. So what have we learned, I guess, out of this experience, you know? Bee stings. Cars aren't the only enemy out there. What have I learned? Are bees the stormtrooper for Darth Mother Nature? Do the EpiPen people control the insect world? That's what I think it is. I don't know, you guys. This is something to think about, and I had to tell that story because it was just, it was God punishing punishing me for not riding or telling me to take a couple more weeks off. I don't know. But now I need something to train for, and I need it quickly. Thanks, you guys, for the patience. Give me a little time to recover from that epic ride. Thank you guys for riding me about not doing an episode and getting my ass back in gear. Keep following on social media. That's where a lot of you guys are commentating with me, and I, I, I love hearing you from you guys on that. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Downloads are, 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 have been going up, but however, when you take a, I don't know, Eight week no, it wasn't eight weeks. Maybe six weeks break off. I don't know. You guys are probably not even gonna listen to me, but there we go. Buy some shit from the sponsors. Go over to Villagerseys.com. Send them out on a high note. There we go. Feels good to be back. We'll talk to you guys next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.